Section 3 of Beacon Lines of History, Volume 13, Great Writers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Sir Walter Scott, Part 1. 1771 to 1832. The Modern Novel. In the early decades of the 19th century, the two most prominent figures in English literature were Sir Walter Scott and Lord Byron. They are still read and admired, especially Scott, but it is not easy to understand the enormous popularity of these two men in their own day. Their busts or pictures were in every cultivated family and in almost every shop window. Everybody was familiar with the lineaments of their countenances and even with every peculiarity of their dress. Who did not know the shape of the Byronic collar and the rough, plated form of the Wizard of the North? Who could not repeat the most famous passages in the writings of these two authors? Is it so now? If not, what a commentary might be written on human fame? How transitory are the judgments of men in regard to everyone whom fashion stamps? The verdict of critics is that only some half-dozen authors are now read with the interest and glow which their works called out a hundred years ago. Even the novels of Sir Walter, although to be found in every library, kindle but little enthusiasm compared with that excited by the masterpieces of Thackeray, Dickens, George Eliot, and of the favorites of the passing day. Why is this? Will these later lights also cease to burn? Will they too pass away? Is this age so much advanced that what pleased our grandfathers and grandmothers has no charm for us, but is often flat, stale, and unprofitable, at least decidedly uninteresting? I am inclined to the opinion that only a very small part of any man's writings is really immortal. Take out the elegy in a country churchyard and how much is left of Gray for other generations to admire. And so of Goldsmith, besides the vicar of Wakefield and the deserted village, there is little in his writings that is likely to prove immortal. Johnson wrote but little poetry that is now generally valued. Certainly his own dictionary, his greatest work, is not immortal, and is scarcely a standard. Indeed, we have outgrown nearly everything which was prized so highly a century ago, not only in poetry and fiction, but in philosophy, theology, and science. Perhaps that is least permanent which once was regarded as most certain. If, then, the poetry and novels of Sir Walter Scott are not so much read or admired as they once were, we only say that he is no exception to the rule. I have in mind but two authors in the whole range of English literature that are read and prized as much today as they were 200 years ago. And if this is true, what shall we say of rhetoricians like Macaulay, of critics like Carlyle, of theologians like Jonathan Edwards, of historians like Hume and Guizot, and of many other great men of whom it has been the fashion to say that their works are lasting as the language in which they are written? Some few books will doubtless live, but alas, how few! Where now are the 800,000 in the Alexandrian library, which Ptolemy collected with so great care? What, even their titles? Where are the writings of Varro, said to have been the most learned man of all antiquity? I make these introductory remarks to show how shallow is the criticism passed upon a novelist or poet like Scott, in that he is not now so popular or so much read as he was in his own day. It is the fate of most great writers, the Augustines, the Voltaires, the Bales of the world. It is enough to say that they were lauded and valued in their time, since this is about all we can say of most of the works supposed to be immortal. But when we remember the enthusiasm with which the novels of Scott were at first received, 
the great sums of money which were paid for them and the honors he received from them he may well claim a renown and a popularity such as no other literary man ever enjoyed his eyes beheld the glory of a great name his ears rang with the plaudits of idolaters he had the consciousness of doing good work universally acknowledged and gratefully remembered scarcely any other novelist ever created so much healthy pleasure combined with so much sound instruction and further he left behind him a reproachless name having fewer personal defects than any literary man of his time being everywhere beloved esteemed and almost worshipped whom distant travellers came to see sure of kind and gracious treatment a hero in their eyes to the last with no drawbacks such as marred the fame of byron or of burns that so great a genius as scott is fading in the minds of this generation may be not without comfort to those honest and hard-working men in every walk of human life who can say we too were useful in our day and had our share of honors and rewards all perhaps that we deserved or even more what if we are forgotten as most men are destined to be to live in the mouths of men is not the greatest thing or the best act well your part there all the honor lies for life after all is a drama or a stage the supremest happiness is not in being praised it is in the consciousness of doing right and being possessed with the power of goodness when however a man has been seated on such a lofty pinnacle as was sir walter scott we wish to know something of his personal traits and the steps by which he advanced to fame was he overrated as most famous men have been what is the niche he will probably occupy in the temple of literary fame what are the characteristics of his productions what gave him his prodigious and extraordinary popularity was he a born genius like byron and burns or was he merely a most industrious worker aided by fortunate circumstances and the caprices of fashion what were the intellectual forces of his day and how did he come to be counted among them all these points it is difficult to answer satisfactorily but some light may be shed upon them the bulky volumes of lockhart's biography constitute a mine of information about scott but are now heavy reading without much vivacity affording a strong contrast to boswell's life of johnson which concealed nothing that we would like to know a son-in-law is not likely to be a dispassionate biographer especially when family pride and interest restrain him on the other hand it is not wise for a biographer to be too candid and belittle his hero by the enumeration of foibles not consistent with the general tenor of the man's life lockhart's knowledge of his subject and his literary skill have given us much and with scott's own letters and the critical notice of his contemporaries both the man and his works may be fairly estimated most biographers aim to make the birth and parentage of their heroes as respectable as possible of authors who are nobly born there are very few most english and scotch literary men are descended from ancestors of the middle class lawyers clergymen physicians small landed proprietors merchants and so on who were able to give their sons an education in the universities sir walter scott traced his descent to an ancient scottish chief his grandfather robert scott was bred to the sea but being shipwrecked near dundee he became a farmer and was active in the cattle trade scott's father was a writer to the signet in edinburgh what would be called in england a solicitor a thriving respectable man having a large and lucrative legal practice and being highly esteemed for his industry and integrity a zealous presbyterian formal and precise in manner strict in the observance of the sabbath and of all that he considered to be right his wife anne rutherford was the daughter of a professor of medicine in the university of edinburgh a lady of rather better education than the average of her time 
a mother whom Sir Walter remembered with great tenderness, and to whose ample memory and power of graphic description he owed much of his own skill in reproducing the past. Twelve children were the offspring of this marriage, although only five survived very early youth. Walter, the ninth child, was born on the 15th of August, 1771, and when quite young, in consequence of a fever, lost for a time the use of his right leg. By the advice of his grandfather, Dr. Rutherford, he was sent into the country for his health. As his lameness continued, he was, at the age of four, removed to Bath, going to London by sea. Bath was then a noted resort, and its waters were supposed to cure everything. Here, little Walter remained a year under the care of his aunt when he returned to Edinburgh, to his father's house in George Square, which was his residence until his marriage, with occasional visits to the county seat of his maternal grandfather. He completely regained his health, although he was always lame. From the autobiography which Scott began but did not complete, it would appear that his lameness and solitary habits were favorable to reading, that even as a child he was greatly excited by tales and poems of adventure, and that as a youth he devoured everything he could find pertaining to early Scottish poetry and romance, of which he was passionately fond. He was also peculiarly susceptible to the beauties of Scottish scenery, being thus led to enjoy the country and its sports at a much earlier age than is common with boys, which love was never lost, but grew with his advancing years. Among his fellows, he was a hardy player, a forward fighter in boyish bickers, and a teller of tales that delighted his comrades. He was sweet-tempered, merry, generous, and well-beloved, yet peremptory and pertinacious in pursuit of his own ideas. In 1779, Walter was sent to the high school in Edinburgh, but his progress here was by no means remarkable, although he laid a good foundation for the acquisition of the Latin language. He also had a tutor at home, and from him learned the rudiments of French. With a head all on fire for chivalry and Scottish ballads, he admired the old Tory cavaliers and hated the roundheads and Presbyterians. In three years, he had become fairly familiar with Caesar, Livy, Sallust, Virgil, Horace, and Terence. He also distinguished himself by making Latin verses. From the high school, he entered the University of Edinburgh, very well grounded in French and Latin. For Greek and mathematics, he had an aversion, but made up for this deficiency by considerable acquisitions in English literature. He was delighted with both Ossian and Spencer, and could repeat the Fairy Queen by heart. His memory, like that of Macaulay, was remarkable. What delighted him more than Spencer were Houle's translations of Tasso and Aristotle. Later, he learned Italian and read these in the original. And Percy's Relics of Ancient Poetry. At college, he also read the best novels of the day, especially the works of Richardson, Fielding, and Smollett. He made respectable progress in philosophy under the teaching of the celebrated Dugald Stewart and Professor Bruce, and in history under Lord Wodehousley. On the whole, he was not a remarkable boy, except for his notable memory, which, however, kept only what pleased him, and his very decided bent toward the poetic and chivalric in history, life, and literature. Walter was trained by his father to the law, and on leaving college he served the ordinary apprenticeship of five years in his father's office and attendance upon the law classes in the university, but the drudgery of the law was irksome to him. When the time came to select his profession, as writer to the signet or an advocate, he preferred the latter, although success here was more uncertain than as a solicitor. Up to the time of his admission to the bar he had read an enormous number of books in a desultory way and made many friends, some of whom afterwards became distinguished. His greatest pleasures were in long walks in the country with chosen companions. 
his love of nature amounted to a passion and in his long rambles he acquired not only vigorous health but the capacity of undergoing great fatigue scott's autobiography closes with his admission to the bar from his own account his early career had not been particularly promising although he was neither idle nor immoral he was fond of convivial pleasures but never had uncommon self-control all his instructors were gentlemanly and he had access to the best society in edinburgh when that city was noted for its number of distinguished men in literature and in the different professions his most intimate friends were john irving sir archibald campbell the earl of dalhousie and adam ferguson with whom he made excursions to the highlands into ruined castles and abbeys of historic interest following with tireless search the new trail of an old border ballad or taking a thirty-mile walk to clear up some local legend of battle foray or historic event in all these antiquarian raids the young fellows mingled freely with the people and tramped the counties round about in a most hilarious mood by no means escaping the habits of the day in tavern sprees and drinkabouts although scott's companions testify to his temperate indulgence the young lawyer was indeed unwittingly preparing for his mission to paint scottish scenery so vividly and scottish character so charmingly that he may almost be said to have created a new country which succeeding generations delight to visit no man was ever a greater benefactor to scotland whose glories and beauties he was the first to reveal showing how the most thrifty practical and parsimonious people may be at the same time the most poetic here burns and he go hand in hand although as a poet scott declared that he was not to be named in the same day with this most unfortunate man of genius that his country and his century produced how singular that in all worldly matters the greater genius should have been a failure while he who was born a poet was the lesser light should have been the greatest popular success of which scotland can boast and yet there is something almost as pathetic and tragical in the career of the man who worked himself to death as in that of the man who drank himself to death the most supremely fortunate writer of his day came to a mournful end notwithstanding his unparalleled honors and his magnificent rewards at the time scott was admitted to the bar he was not of course aware of his great original creative powers nor could he have had very sanguine expectations of a brilliant career the profession he had chosen was not congenial with his habits or his genius and hence as a lawyer he was not a success and yet he was not a failure for he had the respect of some of the finest minds in edinburgh and at once gained as an advocate enough to support himself respectively among aristocratic people aided no doubt by his father who as a prosperous writer to the signet threw business into his hands amid his practice at the courts he found time to visit some of the most interesting spots in scotland and he had money enough to gratify his tastes he was a thriving rather than a prosperous lawyer that is to say he earned his living but scott was too much absorbed in literary studies and in writing ballads to give to his numerous friends the hope of a distinguished legal career no man can serve two masters his heart was in the highlands a-chasing the deer or ransacking distant villages for antiquarian lore or collecting ancient scottish minstrelry or visiting moss-covered and ivy-clad ruins famous before john knox swept monasteries and nunneries away as cages of unclean birds but most of all he was interested in the feuds between the lowland and highland chieftains and in the contest between roundheads and cavaliers when scotland lost her political independence he did however find much in scotch law to enrich his mind with entanglements and antiquarian records as well as the humours and tragedies of the courts and of this his writings show many traces no young lawyer ever had more efficient friends than walter scott 
and richly he deserved them, for he was generous, companionable, loyal, a brilliant storyteller, a good hunter and sportsman, bright, cheerful, and witty, doubtless one of the most interesting young men in his beautiful city, modest, too, and unpretentious, yet proud, claiming nothing that nothing might be denied him, a favorite in the most select circles. His most striking peculiarity was his good sense, keeping him from all exaggerations which were always offensive to him. He was a Tory, indeed, but no aristocrat ever had a more genial humanity, taking pleasure in any society where he could learn anything. His appetite was so healthy from his rural sports and pedestrian feats that he could dine equally well on a broiled haddock or a saddle of venison, although from the minuteness of his descriptions of Scottish banquets, one might infer that he had great appreciation of the pleasures of the table. It is not easy to tell when Scott began to write poetry, but probably when he was quite young. He wrote for the pleasure of it, without any idea of devoting his life to literature. Writing ballads was the solace of his leisure hours. His acquaintance with Francis, Lord Geoffrey, began in the 1791 at a club, where he read an essay on ballads which so much interested the future critic that he sought an introduction to its author. And the acquaintance thus begun between these two young men, both of whom unconsciously stood on the threshold of great careers, ripened into friendship. This happened before Scott was called to the bar in 1792. It was two years afterwards that he produced a poem which took by surprise a literary friend, Miss Cranston, and caused her to exclaim, Upon my word, Walter Scott is going to turn out a poet, something of a cross between Burns and Gray. In 1795, Scott was appointed one of the curators of the Advocates' Library, a compliment bestowed only on those members of the bar known to have a zeal in literary affairs. But I do not read that he published anything until 1796, when appeared his translation from the German of Berger's Ballads, The Wild Huntsman, and Lenore. This called out high commendation from Dugald Stewart, the famous professor of moral philosophy in the University of Edinburgh, and from other men of note, but obtained no recognition in England. It was during one of his rambles with his friend Ferguson to the English Lakes in 1797 that Scott met Miss Charlotte Margaret Carpenter, or Charpentier, a young French lady of notable beauty and lovely character. She had an income of about £200 a year, which, added to his earnings as an advocate, then about £150, encouraged him to offer to her his hand. For a young couple just starting in life, £350 was an independence. The engagement met with no opposition from the lady's family, and in December of 1797, Scott was married and took a modest house in Castle Street, being then 26 years of age. The marriage turned out to be a happy one, although Covenants had something to do with it. Of course, so healthy and romantic a nature as Scott's had not passed through the susceptible time of youth without a love affair from so small a circumstance as the lending of his umbrella to a young lady, Margaret, the beautiful daughter of Sir John Belches, he enjoyed five years of affection and of what seems to have been a reasonable hope, which, however, was finally ended by the young lady's marrying Mr. William Forbes, a well-to-do banker and later one of Scott's best friends. Three years of dreaming and two years of waking, Scott calls it in one of his diaries, thirty years later, and then his own marriage followed within a year after that of his lost love. With an income sufficient only for the necessities of life, as a married man in society, Scott had not much to spare for expensive dinners, although given to hospitality. What money he could save was spent for books and travel. At 26, he had visited what was most interesting in Scotland, 
either in scenery or historical associations and some parts of england especially the cumberland lakes he took a cottage at laswade near edinburgh and began there the fascinating pursuit of tree planting and place making his vacations when the courts were not in session were spent in excursions to mountain scenery and those retired villages where he could pick up antiquarian lore particularly old border ballads heroic traditions of the times of chivalry and of the conflicts of scottish chieftains concerning these no man in scotland knew so much as he his knowledge furnishing the foundation alike of his lays and his romances his enthusiasm for these scenic and historic interests was unquenchable a source of perpetual enjoyment which made him a most acceptable visitor wherever he chose to go both among antiquaries and literary men and ladies of rank and fashion in march seventeen ninety nine mr and mrs scott visited london where they were introduced to many distinguished literary men on their return to edinburgh the office of sheriff depute of selkirkshire having become vacant worth three hundred pounds a year scott received the appointment which increased his income to about seven hundred pounds although his labors were light the office entailed the necessity of living in that county a few months in each year it was a pastoral quiet peaceful part of the country belonging to the duke of buckley his friend and patron he published translation in this year of goethe's getz of berklagen added to his growing reputation and led him on towards his career End of section three.